You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. And all the people gathered as one into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. And on the first day of the seventh month, he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maasiah, and on his right hand, Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Mesholam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kalida, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law. And while the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicings, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feasts of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square of the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in booths, For from the days of Joshua the son of Nun to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. This is the word of the Lord. 
Well, one of the constant refrains throughout the scripture is a prayer. Revive us. Revive us again. Will you not revive us again? The psalmist asks. Habakkuk the prophet, we've heard the rumors of you. We know what you can do. Do it again in our time. Revive us again. Awaken us. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, I do not understand Christian people who are not thrilled by the whole idea of revival. How can we read about moves of God in Scripture? How can we read about the moves, significant moves of God in history and not desperately want to experience it in our time? We've heard the rumors of you, God. Do it again. So the topic of revival has been swirling around lately, especially since a small Christian college in Kentucky host, you heard about this? Hosted a 13-day worship service. Um, not only did it go viral, but it, news agencies were s- starting to report on it. And there was all kinds of speculation about this. Like, is this a real revival? It's funny how Christians do that, right? They start to analyze it. Is this real? You know, how do we mark, what are the marks of a true revival and on and on? And, and, and honestly, in years past, I probably would have had a strong opinion. But this was just another opportunity for me to revisit some of the history of Christian revivals that have happened across the globe. To be reminded of the extraordinary moves of God, even in just the last couple hundred years in places like Korea and East Africa and India, North America, in Wales, in the Hebrides, in China, in Central in South America, in almost every corner of the world. So what is a revival? A revival is a concentrated work of God among his people where spiritual vitality and hunger breaks in. And while many of these moves of God will take on certain characteristics, and they should because they're happening in particular cultures and particular environments, and they should reflect that area in some way. But that being said, there are a few constants or common features that appear in historic revivals. J.I. Packer wrote this little book called God in Our Midst, and he outlined some of these recurring features that are seen throughout biblical and historic revivals. He begins with an awareness of God's presence. You know that God is reviving his people when the entire congregation or a whole community becomes overwhelmed with the presence of God, that God has drawn awesomely near in his holiness, in his mercy, and his might. God is in our presence, and we feel it. He also said it's accompanied with responsiveness to his word. He said the, the, the message of scripture, which previously was making only a superficial impact, if that, now begins to search its hearers and readers to the depth of their being. God's people say, oh my gosh, God has spoken. He also described sensitivity to sin, repentance, and revival go hand in hand. When God's people begin to see God in all of his holiness, something else happens. We become very aware of our sin. We become humbled by our sin and our brokenness and our need for forgiveness and grace that is found in Christ alone. 
He describes liveliness in community. A revived people will be filled with life and joy from the Holy Spirit, and it will result in loving and generous experiences among God's people. And then lastly, he says fruitfulness and testimony, meaning that there's this extraordinary impulse, like you can't hold me back from going and telling other people about what God has done in my life. There's this impulse to go and proclaim it and to spread the news. Let me tell you about what God did in our midst. So these are helpful to keep in mind as we look here at Nehemiah chapter eight, which I believe is nothing less than a move of God among his people bringing spiritual renewal. Now the story of Nehemiah, as you know, begins with a lot of talk about this rebuilding of the wall. But guess what, the project's done and the story continues. So clearly God is doing something more than just rebuilding the infrastructure of Jerusalem. What is God doing? He is rebuilding his people. And what I hope to do this morning is to challenge you to care about what God cares about. What I intend to do is, by God's grace, to stir your heart to begin to long for the things of God and to desire to experience the move of the Holy Spirit in our time, to not be content to just read about it in the past, but plead with God, do it again. Coming off strong this morning, aren't I? We talk about revival, that kind of happens. So here's the first point. Bring out the book. Bring out the book. As a preacher, I can't think of a more satisfying statement to hear among God's people. Bring out the book. We're not here to be entertained. We're not here because our spouse dragged us here. We're not here to be affirmed in our own ambitions and agendas and to sprinkle some Christianity on top of it. We are here for the book. Bring out the book. Verse one, and all the people gathered as one man in the square before the Watergate pause. What has the ability to unify us? What has the ability to tear down the divisions that exist between us? What what has the power to overcome our differences? The book. And they told Ezra, the scribe, bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. I love this. They told him. They did not ask him nicely. They did not ask him politely. They told him. We're taught from a very early age, or at least I hope you were, to not be a demanding person. Be kind and courteous and say please and thank you. But here's a question. What is an appropriate demand as God's people gather together? Bring out the book. We're not asking your permission. We're not asking you kindly. Bring out the book, man. Now, the law of Moses, that's shorthand for the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's where we learn about the creation account. It's where we hear about the covenant that God made with Abraham. It's where we read about the Exodus, God's covenant with Israel, the commands, and God's faithful presence and uh, provision to his people. Verse 2 through 3. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand, and they heard on the first day of the seventh month, 
And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So the whole community gathers around the reading of scripture, men, women, and children from early morning to midday, somewhere between five to six hours, our legs started to shake during Nehemiah chapter eight. <laughs> We're like, okay, well, finish it up. Five to six hours. And while I'm confident as a parent of five kids that kids were being kids just like kids will always be kids, there is something extraordinary about every single person standing in awe, the reading and proclaiming of God's word for such a prolonged amount of time. Something supernatural is happening here, right? In his book, From Here to Maturity, an author named Thomas Burgler, he writes about what he calls the juvenilization of American Christianity. What he essentially says is that we're now all adults with adolescent spiritual mindsets. Our bodies grew, our spirituality didn't. Why? And so he talks about the lack of spiritual depth that exists in American Christianity. I'm not talking about global Christianity. I'm talking about American Christianity today. And he says it can be traced back to, big surprise, the 20th century. And he says that it can really be traced back to when the church started creating distance between adults and children. In an attempt to attract children, and that is, by the way, church growth 101, you want to get adults, you get their children, then everyone comes to church. That's what all the leadership gurus say, at least. But in an attempt to attract kids, they shifted their focus from training and teaching kids. That's why many of us don't even know what the word catechism means. Cata what? Is that Catholic? What? So they shifted the attention from training and teaching children to entertaining children and making sure that they're having fun. Did you get your sticker today? And then decades later, we wonder why there continues to be this astronomical drop off in religious devotions once kids graduate high school. Why they fail to integrate into the church community in early adulthood, why? Because they weren't discipled in Christ, they were discipled in fun. And then <laughs> they show up and they're like, what is this? This isn't this. Deuces, I'm out. The vision of God's people, and therefore, hear me clearly, the vision of God's people here is that men, women, and children would be equipped in the scriptures, why? because only the Bible has the power to transform us. We're not trying to be creative. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel. We're not trying to be the most wise. We're not trying to be the most innovative. We're trying to be faithful to the book. Why? Because we really believe this transforms lives. It says the ears of all the people were attentive to the book. I love this. The literal translation in the Hebrew is they put their ear to the book. It's like a child being given a, a large shell for the first time and standing in awe, and they're like, I hear it. I hear it. 
It's as if they realized in that moment that God, the God of the universe, the creator of all things, was speaking to them graciously in that very moment. It was as if the transcendent eternal God had drawn awesomely near to them. And one of the ways this occurred was through the reading and the proclaiming of God's word. This is actually a New Testament command as well that Paul picks up as he's instructing a young leader named Timothy. He says this in 1 Timothy 4, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exercise, uh, no, exhortation, don't do that, that's, well, exhortation and teaching. So we're told that Ezra stood on the platform and he read, not because he has a big ego, but because they didn't have these, right? They, he needed to project his voice. That's why I came down off of this. I got a microphone. You don't need me elevated like that. And it says also that the Levites help the people understand. So the Bible is read. It's read clearly. And then it's, then it's explained. They help the people make sense of it. Now, some commentators are divided on this. Some believe that the Levites then went among the church and said like, hey, let me help you understand what that is. I know that's, you know, the book of Leviticus, very confusing, I know. So let me tell you about what's going on here. But some commentators actually believe that the Levites were translating it. And this is a decent interpretation because later in Nehemiah, we read that half of the people returning from exile didn't speak the Hebrew language. So imagine your parents being immigrants, I know some of you don't have to imagine that. Most likely, you speak their language and you speak English. But now imagine having children. It's less likely that your children are going to speak the language of your parents. And, and then maybe add one more generation to that. So these people are taken away into captivity. They, they learn the language there. They come back and they're like, I don't understand it. So there's a short documentary. It's probably like 10 to 15 minutes about a tribe in Papua, Indonesia, receiving the word of God translated into their language, the Hupla language, for the very first time. And this short video shows an entire tribe, about 3,000 people, joyfully filing into this small valley with just a dirt runway in the middle of it. And they're celebrating and they're singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. They're dancing, they're playing instruments, there's a whole celebration. They're waiting in anticipation. They finally see this plane sort of come around a mountain and it begins its descent into this valley. And as the plane lands, the tribe leaders walk in unison with their arms locked together, step by step, like they're walking down the aisle at a wedding sort of thing, very sort of ceremonially to the plane where the pilot steps out and hands them a package, the Bible translated in their language for the very first time. Picture that scene. And they're trembling. And they're praying and they're praising and they silence the people. Like This is just like a we're on the edge of our seat kind of moment. And they felt in that moment an awareness like never before that the God that they worship is not far off. That he is a God who desires to be known and has graciously made himself known. That God had spoken to them. And that is no less true for the people in Nehemiah 8 or no less true of the people in 
in Indonesia and no less true for us. God has spoken to us. And here we are with the most access to the Bible of any generation before. I can't even count how many translations are in English. The most access to God's word of any generation before us, and yet we are perhaps one of the most biblically illiterate generations of all time. Let that sink in. The American Bible Society found that roughly 26 million people had mostly or completely stopped reading their Bible during the last few years of COVID. We used to say, I don't have any time for the Bible. And then we realized that wasn't it. We had all the time in the world and we realized that wasn't it. Something else is going on. And so revive us again is a prayer that God would give us a hunger for his word, an insatiable appetite that will not be satisfied in anything other than God speaking into our lives. A desire to know him as he has made himself known, to hear him speaking, listen friends, to put our ear to the book. I hear from a lot of people that say, man, I just wish that God would speak to me. You wanna hear God speak to you? Put your ear to the book. You wanna hear him speak to you audibly? Read it out loud. Put your ear to the book. Bring out the book. What is it? What's a good demand in God's people or God's church? Amen. Don't stop that demand. I'm going off script right now. If you see this pulpit begin to decline, make your demand known. Bring out the book. Secondly, postures of praise. Verse 5. And Ezra opened the book, verse five, in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. So what Nehemiah records here is before Ezra even speaks a word, just the ruffling of the pages or the opening of the scroll, all of God's people are on their feet. I remember uh, those scenes from the show Downton Abbey where all the like footmen and the maids and all the hired hands would be eating around the table in the basement and the moment that Mr. Carson walks like on their feet immediately like drop the drop the spoon drop the fork kick out the chair on our feet as if someone important has walked in the room and so they stand with a sense of reverence at the reading and proclaiming of God's word. They're hanging on every word. They're, they're poised before the words are even spoken. So there's a whole world of science around body language. And to be honest, it is way beyond me to be talking about this, but that doesn't stop me often. So what, you know, what we communicate with scowls or folded arms, I, every Sunday morning I see a few folded arms like impress me, man, I dare you. Uh, or like aggressive body language. It impacts our interactions with others and it shapes their minds about us. Think about when you're in a space and someone walks into the room and you know immediately what kind of mood they're in. You're like, oh, I'm gonna stay away from them. They look like they're in a bad mood today. Or they're like, they have pep in their step. And you're like, Pat, I wanna be around that guy. He seems to have a good attitude. I wanna hear from him. And so a social psychologist named Amy Cuddy found that there was extensive research to show how our body language shapes other people's minds about us. Like if we walk in a room, people are gonna be thinking things about us based on our body language. But the big question that she wanted to answer was this, how does our body language shape us? 
It could shape other people's minds, but how does it shape our own minds? And what she found was not only does, it, does our mind change our body language, right? The mood that you're in is gonna affect your body language, but she found the opposite is true, that our body language can effectively change our minds. So she set up these, these research scenarios with people in the workplace that took, took two different positions. What she described as a power position so imagine sitting at like a conference table with your feet kicked up on the table and your arms back, like you, you own the place, a power position. And then she positioned other people in what she called a cowering position, just sort of folded up, timid like this, just for a few minutes. And then they analyzed these people. And what they found was that those who were in the power positions, that their testosterone levels increased and their cortisol levels, which impact stress levels, came down. They were more confident, less stress. And then what they found is the opposite happened. Those who were in cowering positions, they had lower levels of testosterone and higher levels of cortisol. So less confidence, more stress. Why am I sharing this? Because science is now just beginning to affirm something that's been there all along in scriptures. And here it is. We are effectively shaped and we are formed through our postures of praise. What we do with our bodies in worship actually matters. Verse six, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, and lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces on the ground. First they say what? Amen, amen. That is an affirmation. That is an emphatic yes. That is a let it be, let it be. Psalm 106, the psalmist says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, amen, praise the Lord. Let all the people say, amen. When we say amen, this is doing multiple things. Number one, it is praising God. Number two, it is actually encouraging the person that is next to you or speaking life and affirmation into them. But also, this is us pumping up our own minds and our own hearts. You ever gone into a situation, maybe you're going to an important meeting or something scary and you're in the car and you start to pump yourself up? You've got this. You got this. You've trained your whole life for this. It's just a meeting. What are they going to do? You start pumping yourself up. What are we doing when we say amen? You got this, man. You can trust him. You're speaking life. You're speaking trust. You're speaking confidence. You're speaking assurance into that heart that doesn't want to believe. Amen. So when I call you to amen, whether you want to believe this or not today, this is not a desperate preacher seeking your affirmation. This is someone pleading with you to give God your emphatic yes. It says also that they're lifting up their hands. There is one universal gesture of satisfaction, celebration, joy, and triumph. It's this. You do it when your team wins. You do it at like the third grade piano recital. You do it when you find out good news. And then when we stand in God's presence with songs that literally said, we raise our hands, we're like, yeah, I'm doing it inside. It's kind of a spiritual thing for me. 
So here's an interesting thing. Um, raising our hands is a natural impulse that both visually able people and blind people do in moments of celebration. Why is that important? Because someone who has never actually seen hands raised will naturally raise their hands in moments of celebration regardless of whether or not they've been taught or shown how to do it. You can't stop someone from celebrating with their hands raised in the air. Why? Number one, we were created to delight. You, you were wired for celebration. You were wired for, uh, for joy. But more specifically, because we were designed for worship. The Bible is a story of you can take the people out of the garden, but you can't take the garden out of the people. We were wired to lift our hands to celebration to God. But here's the sad news. We find lesser things to celebrate. We find lesser things to celebrate. And they bowed their heads. Psalm 50, I'm sorry, sorry, Psalm 95. You guys still with me? Oh, come, let us worship and what? Bow down, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Why do we have carpets? I don't know, because the Bible says to bow. Like this isn't like, oh, reality. It was like a church that was planted in the early 2000s. So that's what they do. They put the carpets out. Because we actually believe God's word instructs us to bow before the Lord. And here's the interesting thing. The, the Hebrew word for worship in the Old Testament is just bow down. It's the same thing. To prostrate yourself before the Lord. To lay on your face before God. It's an appropriate posture of our bodies before an almighty God. And so it's little wonder why so many of us don't experience God in life-changing ways. Because we are unwilling to engage God the way that the Bible says to we want to engage him on our own terms. We want to engage him casually. We want to engage him stoically. Well, that's not my personality. I'm not really a charismatic person. We want to engage him half-heartedly. We want to engage him with our arms crossed and cynically. We offer God maybe our thoughts and, and maybe even our emotions, but not our bodies. And then we wonder why we struggle so much and we're so susceptible to sins of the flesh Monday through Saturday. Let me say it this way. Revival and stoicism do not mingle. They don't mingle. And I want to plead with you from the scriptures to engage God with your whole being. Number three, respond with rejoicing. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who is not ready for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your what? Strength. I'm reminded of a famous interview with a young man named Andrew where an interviewer asked, Andrew, are you excited about pre-kindergarten? And he said, yeah. And she said, why? He said, I don't know. And she asked, are, are you going to miss your mom? And he said, no. And she said, no. And he's smiling. And then what happens? He begins to cry. And she says, oh, don't cry. This was intended to be a joyful moment. You're crying. That was not my intention. It's almost as if the leaders here in Jerusalem underestimated the effect that God's word was going to have on them. 
They're like, oh, oh, oh gosh, this thing got out of control real quick. Calm down, let's celebrate. What we see happening here is God's word is bringing deep conviction over their sin. And they're being reminded of just how much they've strayed from the covenant. They're reading God's word. They're reading the Torah. They, they surely would have gotten to Deuteronomy where Moses lays out the blessing and the curses of the old covenant, that they would be blessed, flourishing and joy if they obey, but that curses would come in unfaithfulness and disobedience. And Moses says, not if, but when, in that day you will be led off to foreign nations and the people of God will hang on by just a thread. And they're hearing these words and they're looking around at Jerusalem at this time in the condition of their city and it's as if it hits them like a ton of bricks. Wait a minute, that's us. It happened. This is absolutely an appropriate response to being convicted by God's word, grief and sorrow of the ways that we've turned our backs on God. This is an appropriate response. But what they're discouraging the people from doing is lingering in that grief. Yes, feel sorrow. In fact, I'm concerned for the person that doesn't feel sorrow over their sin. But here's the truth. God is not judging the sincerity of your repentance based on your self-hatred. God is not like, I don't think you feel bad enough about yourself. Why don't you sit in it a little bit longer until you really hate yourself? Then you'll change. The point of godly grief is to lead us to repentance. Repentance leads us to the grace, forgiveness, and healing of God. And grace leads us to joy. That's how David, the psalmist, says in Psalm 51, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. He knew where this path of repentance was leading and we need to know as well. God is not calling us to wallow in our sorrow and to hate ourselves and to beat ourselves up until we change. God is calling us into healing. God is calling us into refreshing. God is calling us into his transforming presence. Joy is the fitting response to receiving and understanding God's word. And we as Christians, have all the more reason to rejoice because of the revelation we have in Jesus Christ. We don't see God just in terms of the old covenant, but we see God in terms of the new covenant. We have the good news of the gospel. We have the Holy Spirit who is our comfort and our assurance and our guarantee. We have what the people of Jerusalem could have only dreamed of that day. A story that I share often is uh, portions of Pilgrim's Progress. It's, a, it's an allegory of the Christian faith. And it follows a story of a man named Christian journeying towards the celestial city. And it begins with him with a little book in his hand and a giant burden on his back. And interestingly, the book is the Bible. And the more that he reads the Bible, the more grieved he becomes. And nothing he can do can shake him from this feeling. He is miserable because of God's word. God's word is driving him into the ground, literally pressing him further and further into the ground and into despair, and his family's concerned about him, but nothing he can do shakes this feeling. In fact, uh, William Blake's painting of Christian shows just how like utterly desperate he is. Look at those leg muscles under those burdens right there, just pressed into the ground. It's like Paul describes in the New Testament, the burden of the law. 
which means you know what God expects of you, but you realize you don't have the power to fulfill it. Knowing what God expects and then looking at your life that doesn't add up and like, crap. And so Christian sets out on this journey. He's carrying this burden all along until he reaches this point. It's it's a hill resembling Calvary. And he comes to the foot of the cross and this burden that he otherwise has just had on his back and he couldn't shake all of a sudden miraculously falls off his back, begins to roll down the hill and lodges itself in the grave, in the ground and he's freed. And he receives instead a scroll, which is the assurance of his salvation. And the reason I bring this up is because we are going to fail to experience real joy in reading God's word if we fail to see God's word in light of the fulfillment that is found in Jesus Christ. I have to imagine in this room, there are people right here that say, I hate God's word. I hate reading it. I'll find anything else to do than open up the Bible. No thanks. And the truth is, that will continue forever until you begin to see it in light of the majesty of Jesus Christ. How Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's promises. That where Israel failed and all the things that we cannot do, Jesus accomplished perfectly on our behalf. The forgiveness of our sins, the approval of God, the power to live in obedience, the hope of restoration, they're all found in Jesus. And so Nehemiah and Ezra and the leaders have this clear sense of what God is doing in the midst of the people. He's not trying to press them down into the ground. What God is doing is he's building them up. Let the celebrations commence. This is a moment of restoring. God is building up his people and the appropriate response to God restoring his people is rejoicing. Lastly, we see a dedication to discovery and I'm done. It says, on the second day, the heads of the father's houses and all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord God had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hills and make branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and every leafy tree to make booths as it is written. So all the head of the households come back the next day hungry for more of God's word. That's my prayer over Bible studies this semester, by the way, that people come back and say, we're hungry for more. We're hungry for more. We want more. And a word that stands out to me in this passage is that they found that it was written in God's word. They found it. And it's as if they saw themselves on a journey to discover things that they had otherwise lost or forgotten, things that had been forgotten in prior generations. And in this case, it's the Feast of Booths. They're like, wait, what? What the heck is this Feast of Booths thing? Like we go out and we get tents and we make tents and we camp in the city for eight days. We've been, we've supposed to have been doing this. Let's do it. Let's, let's do it right now. There was no sense that God's word was some sort of boring, ancient, irrelevant piece of religious literature. They had this overwhelming sense, wait, God is summoning us. God is speaking to us and to our children's generation, revealing himself 
to us. And as an act of faith, they sought to immediately live and obey accordingly. So this fall, we're creating a unique opportunity for those who wanna return for more, so to speak. An additional track in our discipleship pathway called Discovery, where you can opt in, this is an optional thing, where you can opt in to learn more about biblical theology, historical theology, systematic theology, spiritual theology, ways to grow in understanding God's word, ways to to help equip you to read God's word and more. In the life cycle of God's people, throughout every generation, ours included, there will always be a need for new discoveries of old truths. And what I wanna do is invite you into that journey today. The discovery of old truths in our time as well. I wanna be like the people of Israel that found it in the word and were like, oh my gosh, God has spoken. Let's align our lives. Let's get on board. Verse 18, and day by day, there's the prayer. From the first day to the last day, he read from the Bible of the law of God. Day by day in God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.